Lee Steinberg was about a decade into his career as a sports agent when he had a crisis of conscience after watching his clients suffer from multiple concussions. When we would go to doctors back in that period, no doctor could really tell us how many hits were too many and what the long-term consequences were. Steinberg decided one day that he was going to make brain health seminars for his athletes a mandatory part of his core practice. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan. Welcome to this very special 50th episode of When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Educating his players about the damaging effects of football is just one way in which Steinberg has served as a player coach to his 300-plus athletes during his 46-year-plus career. Steinberg has an unrivaled history of record-setting contracts in football, baseball, basketball, boxing, and Olympic sports. He has secured more than $3 billion for his pro athletes and has directed more than $750 million to various charities around the world. Steinberg also requires all of his athletes to give back to their communities. I'm joined now by the legendary Lee Steinberg, CEO of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. Steinberg's blue chip clients include the number one overall pick in the NFL draft, for an unprecedented eight times in conjunction with 64 total first-round picks. He has represented notable athletes such as Troy Aikman, Steve Young, Patrick Mahomes, Oscar De La Hoya, and Lennox Lewis, as well as multiple Olympians and professional teams. Steinberg is often credited as the inspiration for the film Jerry Maguire, starring Tom Cruise and Oscar Award winner Cuba Gooding Jr. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Was there a particular moment of clarity or an incident or episode when you realized that the physical trauma of brain concussion from football was something you had to address? I was watching Troy Aikman, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, play in his first season in Arizona, and he got knocked out. And he was laying flat on his back and not moving. And at that point, time attenuated, and every second seemed like a minute, and every minute seemed like an hour. And um, when we would go to doctors back in that period, no doctor could really tell us how many hits were too many and what the long-term consequences were. So as you mentioned, I had a crisis of conscience, and I said, we need to explore the uh, reality of, of uh, TBI and, and concussions and understand what the dangers are. And so that led to a series of conferences, which we've probably done about 16 now, and we do one every year in which we explore uh, what the awareness, prevention, cure. And the difficult thing is athletes tend to be in a state of denial when it comes to their uh, physical uh, state. They grow up playing Pop Warner and, and Little League, and they accept norms of injury that are abnormal to the rest of us. And so it becomes very difficult to get them to confront this because there's athletic denial, which all athletes share with other athletes, they could have a very serious injury and they will tell you nothing's wrong. 
And then there's young people denial where the future seems like an impossibility to even visualize. And um, what I've found out is that every time an offensive lineman hits a defensive lineman at the inception of a play in football, it produces a low-level sub-concussive event, a little bit of brain change. And so an offensive lineman could walk out of football with 10,000 sub-concussive hits, none of which have been diagnosed and none of which he's aware of, but the aggregate will almost certainly do the predilection towards uh, Alzheimer's, ALS, uh, premature senility, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and depression that getting knocked out three times will. And so this is a ticking Tom bomb and an undiagnosed health epidemic we need to urgently address. And on top of all of those uh, issues you discussed, there's often you're seeing uh, uh, evidence, I think doctors are seeing evidence of potential suicides on the part of these, some of these players as well, related to the depression, I imagine. So that um, is one of the bad byproducts of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And there's a syndrome that seems to take place when someone is too far advanced in it, where they become deeply depressed. It, it, ruins their marriage, they stop being able to work, they have periods of time where they're very angry, and in a number of cases have committed suicide at the end of it. So again, um, I love football. I think it, and and any sport that has collision in it is, uh, apt to have this problem, AYSO soccer, um, young girls uh, uh, who head the ball in, in some cases show lower test scores. Um, so it's a universal issue for collision sports. And um, so what I've tried to do is figure out if there are methods in prevention, prophylactically protecting the brain prior to it uh, getting hit, if there's protective equipment, if there's so a helmet that uses coil and compression to uh, attenuate the energy uh, uh, field and dissipate it. Um, are there nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals that um, can heal the brain or protect the brain? Um, this is all a brave new world because the brain's the last frontier of medical research. Um, but the good news is there's a profit motive now because the same product that uh, would protect a football player pr would protect someone who has a motorcycle accident or falls off a horse or um, uh, is in another collision sport. So um, hopefully we'll, we'll see breakthroughs and advances here um, because this injury is different than anything else. We know that players, because in a, a sport like football, will break down all the joints in their body and may be difficult when they turn uh, 50 to pick up their child. It's another thing not to be able to identify that child. The brain is the center of uh, consciousness and, and judgment and memory and what it means to be a sentient being as opposed to uh, this desk here. Having learned uh, as much as you did about brain concussion, did you ever have sort of a 
qualms about representing players in a sport that is so potentially dangerous and can even and is even killing or maiming a lot of them absolutely and um so you're presented with a choice um knowing that brain damage may be at the end of the road for some of the athletes um if you stay involved or the question is am i an enabler but staying involved and advocating reform probably does more to help. And um, concussion is the existential threat to certain collision sports because if half of the m mothers understood the facts we just talked about and tell their teenage sons, you can play any sport but not tackle football, it won't kill football, but it will turn it into a gladiator sport where only people who are economically challenged will decide to do it. And sports don't succeed at the professional level unless people are able to play them in large numbers. And so it's a, a disturbing long-term trend. Your efforts to help players with protecting their brain health, uh, I think probably came very naturally to you given that you've developed this very purpose-driven practice. Uh, where did your values come from? Well, initially from my parents. Um, so my father brought us up with two core values. One is treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So in our practice, we ask the athletes to go back and retrace their roots to the high school community where they can set up a scholarship fund or work with the Boys and Girls Club or a church, and then to the collegiate institution where once again they can endow a scholarship fund, and then at the professional level to set up charitable foundations which have the leading political figures, business figures, and community leaders on an advisory board to execute a program. So it's the former running back work done having a program called Homes for the Holidays where he has moved 175 single mothers and their families into the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and having the house outfitted. And messaging can also be powerful. So you mentioned Lennox Lewis, the boxer. Well, he did a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. And that could do more to trigger imitative behavior and behavioral change in rebellious adolescence than a thousand authority figures could. So it's trying to not simply negotiate contracts, but it's stimulating the best values in young men, encouraging them to be role models. And, and then what we can do together to tackle problems like domestic violence and, and bullying and sex trafficking and racism and uh, rolling back climate change. You know, you basically written the playbook for what it's, it is to be a sports agent. You basically wrote the job description. Uh, how did that come about? Did you always want to be a sports agent? Oh, no. Um, there really wasn't an established field of sports agents when I was going to school. So I was either going to go into politics, work for a nonprofit when I came out of law school, or I liked courtroom law. So I thought about... Uh, 
working as a DA or a public defender. Um, I was living in a dorm as a dorm counselor at UC Berkeley back in the tumultuous days of the 60s. Um, actually, I learned everything I needed to know about negotiating because every time when I was student body president that we demonstrated, the governor was Ronald Reagan and he cracked down. Uh, but I was a dorm counselor in an undergrad dorm and one of the students was the quarterback on the football team and in 1975, he became the very first player selected in the first round of the NFL draft and asked me to represent him. So there I was, brimming with legal experience, never <laughs> having practiced law before. And he was the first player overall, and we got the largest rookie contract. And really in that was a seminal relationship because – I saw the idol worship and veneration that athletes were held in communities across the country, how they were the movie stars. And um, at that point, teams could just hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. There was no guaranteed right. So it was somewhat rudimentary. Uh, the economics were certainly um, uh, had no relationship to what they are today. Um, but it was only after seeing the power of role modeling that I thought I'd continue on uh, in in representing athletes. And this came after you got your law degree, and you'd also done a little bit of, uh, I guess, international travel, and you, you wound up coming home pretty sick, I think. So whenever people um, get disappointed in life, um, we always talk about, you know, the, the road traveled, the road not traveled. Um, <laughs> I, I took a tour around the world. And when I got to Egypt, um, they just had the Yom Kippur War. So the people I was traveling with didn't want to go. But I went and um, I went out with a family uh, that had one of those curved sailboats on the Nile and the kids were jumping in the river and so I did too, only to find later that there are dozens of diseases endemic to the Nile River. So I got really sick and left Egypt, went to England, and they immediately put me in quarantine. So um, I was six weeks in the hospital there. So I couldn't take the jobs in, um, as a DA or corporate litigation or politics or TV news that I'd been offered. Um, and that meant that I was available when Bartkowski asked me. So um, it, it sometimes when reverses can lead to um, uh, amazing opportunity. Over your nearly 50-year career, you've represented the best of the best across many, many sports. How did you build this blue-chip clientele, and, and what do you think drew them to you? Do you think it was this values-driven, purpose-driven practice that you had? What, what drew them to you, or just your ability to get good money for them? I think um, the most critical skill is the ability to listen and draw another person out so that you can peel back the layers of the onion and get deeper and deeper below the surface to understand someone's deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams. To be able to put yourself into the heart and mind of another human being and see the world the way they see it. So part of the key is an exploratory process where I'm really 
trying to get a young man or woman to focus on how important short-term economic gain or long-term economic security or family or geographical location or profile or the sports considerations, being on a winning team, the quality of coaching, and to understand that constellation of values and have the athlete be able to prioritize it. So in that way, I can bond deeply with an athlete and help them fulfill their dreams. And do you have a history of retaining them for many, many years? Uh, do you find yourself successful in doing that? Oh, uh, Warren Moon and I, for example, the former quarterback of Houston and some other teams and the first um, African-American quarterback to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, and I were together for 23 years. He actually played six in Canada and 17 in the NFL. Bruce Smith, the all-time sack leader, 19 years. Um, uh, Troy Aikman and Steve Young, like 14 years. So the goal is... Um, if someone's going to choose our practice, they, we profile ahead of time prospective clients so that we're looking for athletes that are self-starters, that um, have ambition, that will be interested in developing second career plans, um, and that have a good heart and a sense of social conscience and understand the power that their profile gives them to be able to talk about non-athletic values and issues and really make a difference. So it's by profiling and then by an athlete having those qualities, then you know it will be a good match. And going back to the brain uh, injury issue, you know, given how long these players stay with you, it probably resonates even more deeply considering they're practically like family. So... It really does, and and when a player talks about memory loss or uh, different problems like that, there are actually proactive things that athletes can do. Um, there are different clinics that treat them with nutraceuticals. Um, there, some people believe in hyperbaric uh, pressure. There are brain retraining concepts like biofeedback that can. Uh, be done. So um, we try to be in solution and to have the athlete be proactive in uh, protecting their uh, brain health. My best allies in this tend to be the uh, parents or the wife or girlfriend of a male player because uh, they care long term about more about that athlete being healthy than about him or her playing another year or two. Your efforts to, you know, your approach and your efforts to give back to those less fortunate than yourself uh, and all of your contributions to these sports have resulted in, in huge amounts of awards and accolades from Congress, from the uh, California state legislature, you know, presidents of the United States, you've been given like, I don't know how many keys to how many cities. Uh, and you also were the inspiration for Tom Cruise's role in Jerry Maguire. What was, what was that like? So I got a call back in 1993 from uh, director writer Cameron Crowe, who told me he wanted to do a film centering around the character of a sports agent and asked if he could 
shadow me and if I take him to a variety of experiences. So we went to the NFL draft in 1993 together where I had the first player picked overall. We went to NFL league meetings where he saw me um, uh, trying to find the right place for free agents. Um, we went to games together. He came to pro scouting day at the University of Southern California, went to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl party. Um, sat in my office and I told him stories, lots and lots of stories. And then he went off and wrote a script. And so my job as technical advisor was to vet the script to make, ensure that the uh, suspension of uh, disbelief necessary to keep you in the flow of a plot and the movie wasn't um, broken. So we didn't have uh, un unrealistic dialogue or, or look. Um, and then I worked with some of the actors. I actually took Cuba Gooding Jr. down with me to the Super Bowl in Arizona and made him pretend for that week that he was a wide receiver client of mine. Um, I showed Jerry O'Connell, who played the quarterback Cush, how to throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have a football program there. So, um, was a interesting experience a lot of life up there on the screen and um, I haven't been able to walk through an airport um, <laughs> I was in an airport last night and and somebody inevitably runs up and and says those four words that start with show me <laughs> <laughs> yeah I just saw a video where Cuba Gooding Jr. says he can't go anywhere without them you know saying that saying that phrase to him right. um, so um, I saw in a in a YouTube video where you said that one of your goals was to make sure that the that the movie didn't come across as a caricature of a sports agent and that it was true to true to life. And did you find that it was in the end? It was. Um, uh, I thought it was very good. There, it, Cameron saw the relationships I had with players like Warren Moon, where there's real caring uh, in the relationship. And um, the stereotype of someone with four pinky rings and slick back hair and uh, only concerned with how much money they could make really doesn't characterize this work, which is um, taking young men and going through their maturation stage with them and then trying to stimulate the best in them, both in terms of of what they can do off the field, but then also second career so that many of the athletes uh, I've worked with are very successful in business or broadcast. Uh, Desmond Howard is the host on College Game Day and Troy Aikman, the number one um, color broadcaster for Fox and, and they own businesses and, and, um, and three of them are actually minority owners of the actual team themselves. So part of the empowerment is to try to encourage them that they can be the owner, that they can, uh, uh, they can fulfill amazing uh, dreams, whether it's media or coaching or business or politics and um, help them really be the best they can be. There's a, an early defining scene in the movie where Tom Cruise, uh, the Jerry Maguire character, has like this 
crisis of conscience, and then he types up this manifesto as the way of, of moving forward in his in his work. And then, of course, he gets fired. Was there something like that that happened in in your life, a defining moment? Well, that's the <clears throat> the first defining moment was arriving in Atlanta at the airport to sign Bartkowski the next day and there are Klieg lights flashing in the sky akin to a movie premiere and a huge crowds pressed up against the police line and the first thing we hear is we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski and his attorney Lee Steinberg have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live for an in-depth interview. And I realized then the power that sports had. So um, the mission statement in Jerry Maguire is uh, certainly influenced by our philosophy of the athlete as role model and also being a steward of sport so that um, if, if we rub fans in the face with contract negotiations and collective bargaining, um, it, it alienates them. And so it's not only that I need to help clients, I need to be a steward of the sport and do the things to keep collegiate and professional sports healthy. And we should note that not only did you advise the movie, but you also had a little cameo in it. Yeah, not to quit my day job, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, as we've we've talked about, you know, you've had this huge positive impact on on those around you, on the sport, on the world, with all of your charitable contributions and uh, encouraging others to give as well. Uh, but your own life has not been without struggles. You've filed for bankruptcy. You've had a very long and difficult battle with alcoholism. You've had years of lawsuits that have cost that cost you briefly, I guess. Uh, your certification as an NFL agent. What happened? First of all, I decided not to practice for a while. I wasn't decertified. Um, but the there were a series of reverses in my personal life that um, I had a father die of cancer. My two boys were diagnosed with a eye injury called retinitis pigmentosa that has led to total blindness in one and impaired vision in the other. Um, we lost the house, the mold, then my marriage started to break up and I turned to the wrong thing. I had not been a chronic drinker throughout my life, but um, sort of like Dr. Pavlov, when he comes in to do the experiment to shock the dog, he doesn't need to shock him. The dog just rolls over in anticipation. And uh, it got to the point in 2010 <clears throat> where I realized I had an epiphany that my uh, life had, had become unbalanced. And so I gave up my practice. I went to sober living. I entered a 12-step program. And I said to myself, the only important thing is that I maintain sobriety and that I'm a good father, and everything else will just be the cherry on top. And so uh, last March, I celebrated my 10th year of continuous sobriety. And if there's someone out there who is struggling uh, because of problems with addiction and is depressed and hopeless, there is hope, and you can reach out. There's help available, and don't give up because... Um, that was 10 years ago, and life is much different now. 
Um, in in a 2012 ESPN story, uh, you had described that one of the lowest points in that that journey of yours, uh, maybe the the lowest point, I don't know, was when you were trying to get admitted to a, a rehab center for indigent alcoholics. Can you talk about that story? It's it's quite uh, amazing. Um, they didn't have a bed, so um, <laughs> <laughs> ironic. So, so I ended up uh, uh, just going straight to sober living, and um, that um, uh, ended up working. Look, to confront the cravings that come with addiction, it really is necessary in most people's lives to hit bottom, whatever you perceive that bottom as. Your life's so unacceptable that you cannot continue like that. And... Um, Again, this was was a, a period of personal reverse. There was nothing in my business life that particularly uh, I found uh, too stressful. I come into the office every day knowing that notwithstanding our best plans, something will go awry. But um, I was simply unprepared because I had the illusion I could somehow protect my father and protect my kids with their eye disease and... Uh, and protect our home and, and hold my marriage together. And when all that uh, began to crumble, um, I turned to the wrong thing. And so I was helped by a whole series of people. But um, And I've been open about my alcoholism in hope that it will help someone else who uh, may be struggling. And was there any one moment or... Uh thing that happened that made you realize that you were at that rock bottom and then you started your climb back up? It was uh, giving my practice to younger people. It was closing up my uh, condo and going to live for a little while with uh, my parents. I was sitting on my father's uh, bed who was deceased at our family home and my only thought was where could I find more vodka? And it really is a sense of proportionality that I wasn't a starving um, peasant in Darfur, that I didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany, that I wasn't, um, I didn't have cancer, I didn't have a problem, and, and that my kids didn't apply for citizenship in this world. You know, we brought them into the world, and the least I owed them was, you know, a, a stable, loving father. So um, um, it, it was that sense. And then I'd been brought up with a natural sense of optimism, and I think the key quality is resilience. Um, life will set you back. You'll have reverses, but can you um, come back and see a new day? I'm sort of a person who, if there's a barn uh, filled with um, defecation, I think there's a pony in there somewhere. And so uh, resilience and uh, optimism. And, and, and did things work out okay with the family? And were you able to bring everything back around with your finances and, and your life? Oh, absolutely. And again, the most important thing is to be a great, a great dad to my kids. And then are we addressing situations in the world that uh, need addressing? You know, you talked about resilience, and this is such a difficult time in history for, for all of us, and in particular for athletes, given that, you know, they've been essentially benched by COVID-19. 
How are your players coping with it? And are you, what are you doing, if anything, to help them deal with it? Or is it just a matter of waiting it out? No. Um, in football, for example, we had a draft that cut off the scouting process at a certain point. So it required adaptation and using Zoom to interact with teams, or in the case of a client we had, Tuatongo Vailoa, taping a workout in a pro passing day that would normally have been done in uh, person. And uh, the first key and priority is safety, obviously, and none of us really know how the pandemic will play out over time. So we're trying to be sensitive uh, to that. And so for the first time, we're going to have baseball and basketball and hockey with no fans. So that will be different. <clears throat> first of all, it has an economic impact uh, because gate is a large part of, um, of the gross revenue. And second of all, we don't know since performance seems to be tied into home field advantage and a stadium filled with, with screaming fans. We don't know what effect it will have on the quality of the play. Fortunately, football comes the last of all the sports, and they won't start their regular season until September. So while at this exact moment we're seeing a spike in, um, in cases across the country, um, the hope is that things will, will calm down, but we'll deal with it, whatever the situation is, and the athletes will uh, deal with it. It's, um, um, it. it's obviously probably the most extraordinary time in this country since World War II and the Great uh, Depression. Um, and so it requires uh, flexibility, resilience, and creativity to think about how we can stay safe and normalize our existence. To add to the perfect storm, you know, on top of COVID-19, you have had all of these, all of this turmoil around social injustice and racism, just tearing up, tearing up this country and having a huge impact on sports as well. How are your athletes dealing with all of this and how are you helping them deal with this turmoil and, and the impact it's likely to have on the sport and, and on, on history? I had a uncle who um, defended a whole series of blacks back in the 1950s uh, who were victims of police brutality. Um, and I remember my dad having me march in 1963 in the civil rights movement. So <clears throat> while this is a revelation, to certain people who are just waking up to the problem. I've been aware of it uh, forever and, and fought really hard. I created a group to fight against racism um, and skinheads and hate groups uh, across the country and, and gave them training as an advance guard against hate. Um, I encourage our athletes to speak out. We've held internal town halls with our clients, which are listening situations. I actually think this will have been a healthy uh, moment, although it may not seem like this now because it's um, it started a dialogue that um, where African Americans can express their feeling and their reality, and and hopefully we can uh, find our way to a better place. But I think anytime you have mass social change, the real question is, 
what can it, in a practical sense can people do? So we have our athletes involved in voter registration. Um, we have a number of them speaking out in in different ways. And again, you look at all these young people who are out on the streets for the first time, and then the question is, will they be around in November to vote? And so what specifically can we do? So as a firm, we're talking about bringing a program which we do which is both an agent academy and a sports career conference to inner city high schools to show them what the um, opportunities are and in sports and to do what we do in our conferences, which is to train young people in um, how to be a sports professional with ethics and values and the rest of it. And the athletes have done a variety of different um, uh, consciousness raising efforts. And so it really is, you can view this not simply as a time of, uh, of uh, uh, chaos and demonstrations, but as a uh, time of uplift for the country. Uh, and hopefully at the end of this, we come out with uh, a much happier and just society. And I think your approach also is another example of how you you look at your uh, athletes as whole athletes, you know, not just uh, oftentimes people look at them as cash registers, you know, and I think to you, you kind of view them as how does how do I represent the whole athlete through their the course of their life as they evolve as people as well. So the enemy in many ways for athletes is self-absorption. It's the concept there that of being passive, of living in a homunculus of athletes, which is a bubble, and not really understanding their other role as, as citizens um, and and the imminence of second career. And so, again, to get athletes involved here, um, I mean, it started with coronavirus. Um, where we had someone like Patrick Mahomes donate, uh, you know, some hundreds of thousands of school lunches for kids. Um, he's spoken out on this uh, issue. And a number of the athletes uh, have, uh, we have a running back, Aaron Jones, who just wrote a great story about Father's Day, but also about the experience of being a young black man uh, in this country. And I think the important thing for white people is to think about the fact that um, when I tell my kids about the police, I tell them they're the friends and protectors. Um, I don't know, but I wonder what a African-American father or teenage boys tells his kids. When I walk out of the house each day, I don't have any fear or apprehension of police. I know that if I have an experience, the most negative thing that could happen is I might get a traffic ticket. Um, but what does it feel like to go out knowing there's a slight chance that you might not come home? So um, athletes, our African-American athletes can express um, this well. And um, our non-African-American athletes are also part of it because to get social justice, it's going to require not simply the activism of uh, African-Americans in the state of California, they only make up 8% of the population. It's, it's to have uh, all people working together. 
Lee, looking back at that young man who was raised by his parents to to make an impact on the world and to give back to society and looking back on that sports agent who lost a decade to alcohol and debt and worked his way back to sobriety and success and the sports agent who's always giving back and is purpose-driven in his practice, what would you say to that young man about the journey that you've been on and where you are today? Um, that one of the things I, I learned in, um, in my experience with alcohol is that the most horrific circumstances can come to someone's life. They can lose a child to drugs. They can experience cancer. Um, but there's no causal connection between that type of adversity and substance abuse. In other words, you don't have to uh, blot out yourself that way. So it's about learning coping skills. Um, and um, uh, what, what I would tell that young person is to make sure that you've done an internal inventory and are pretty clear on what your goals are in life. And um, understand that when we help other people and make a difference, um, it's human beings are social animals and um, we're really tied together in fundamental ways so that um, more than simply looking at your own personal goals, it's, it's how you can be an active member of uh, a community and uh, bring uplift to other people. Have you had any what I call viral insights from COVID-19, that moment of clarity brought upon by a crisis? I think we're going to look back in some ways and think the most amazing thing was that a country of 330 million people actually quarantined themselves and um, uh, put aside, put themselves in economic uh, problems and all the rest of it to try to fight this virus. I think it's going to, um, the remarkable thing to me is not that you have people that are behaving in unsafe ways, it's just you have so many people that have sacrificed themselves to try to put an end to the virus. And I mean, if you had said a country, 330 million people based on the concept that uh, don't tread on me, uh, and individualism would be able to do that collective sacrifice, I think that's an extraordinary thing. I mean, clearly we're not out of the woods, um, but the point was uh, not only are the first responders and medical community heroes, but I think every single person who sat at home knowing they might lose their job or um, uh, that their economics were challenged or their ability to move and travel was challenged, um, but they sacrificed it and, and went uh, through with it. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. As I mentioned, this is the 50th episode of When It Mattered, so I'm so happy that you accepted my invitation to be my guest of honor for this special episode. It was my pleasure. Lee Steinberg is CEO of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. Steinberg is a legendary sports agent who has represented some of the most famous athletes in sport history. He's the author of the best-selling book, Winning with Integrity, providing insight on how to improve life through non-confrontational negotiation. 
His most recent book, The Agent, My 40-Year Career of Making Deals and Changing the Game, details his decades of dominance in the sports industry and sheds light on overcoming his personal struggles to launch his comeback. Lee has been rated the sixth most powerful person in the NFL, according to Football Digest, and the 16th most powerful person in sports, according to the Sporting News. And he was the only agent that made Sports Illustrated's list of most influential figures that shaped the NFL's first 100 years. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.